Welcome to the Pod of Asclepius, your healthcare technology podcast for the technical crowd. We're bringing the technical experts of engineering, entrepreneurship, data science, and regulation straight to your earbuds. And here's your host, Glenn Wright Colopy. Hey folks, welcome back to the show. Today we're continuing our three-part episode on data for drug and device development. We've got one more after this with Lisa Lavange. So don't forget to subscribe if you'd like to be notified when the next episode comes out. And today we've got a great guest, Rob Scott, Chief Medical Officer at AbbVie, who's who's giving a keynote at the 2020 Orange County Biostatistics Symposium. And Rob's a busy guy, but he made some time for us today to give us more of a clinical perspective on the priorities of data-driven medicine. So welcome, Scott. Maybe we should start off with you telling us what does a chief medical officer do and what does it mean? Does it mean different things for different companies? So actually the role of chief medical officer varies from company to company. Uh, what's become common in recent times is for the chief medical officer to represent the uh, global medical affairs function. But at, uh, at least in, in large pharma companies that, that have that function in small biotech, the chief medical officer is usually the person who's responsible for all of the clinical development uh, activities. At, at AbbVie, as chief medical officer, I'm also the head of development. So I'm clearly not the person in the global medical affairs role. My, my job at AbbVie is to run all clinical development from phase one through phase four. Um, there is, of course, an element of being chief medical officer that's not exactly defined like that. And actually, when I started at AbbVie, they hadn't had a chief medical officer prior to, to me joining. And they asked me, what did I think the sort of special parts of being a chief medical officer are? And I, I feel that, that one of the roles that I play is that I'm an advocate for patient rights and for doing the right thing by patients. Everybody at AbbVie feels passionately about that. But I think as chief medical officer, that's a special responsibility that's placed on me to make sure that we always think about patients first. Well, it's interesting to hear you talk about this patient-centered focus. As you know, many people, when they enter the health tech sector, they do it because they would like to improve the outcomes that patients experience. But is part of your unique perspective on this, the fact that as an MD, you've actually been at the interface between patients and their treatments, patients and their outcomes, and that by having been at more of this interface, you're better able to prioritize what you're looking for in um, patient-centered outcomes? Yes. So, you know, the first thing is that as a physician, I chose this as my career. I've wanted from a young age to help patients. Many people who are MDs uh, have that basic drive and vocation. But then also, I've had the experience of dealing with patients. I understand what uh, patients go through, uh, particularly when they're in clinical trials. And to some extent, I understand what's important to patients. Yeah, and I guess that by being at the interface of the patients and their treatments, that also gives clinicians more of an intuition about the clinical processes that are generating the data, uh, for example, that statisticians look at, or just the outcomes in general. And they understand, for example, how a particular treatment might not be suited for a particular patient and the confounding factors that can be involved in any treatment process. And I guess also clinicians are the ones who actually have to 
figure out how to augment a treatment or some type of uh, treatment regime depending on the patient's confounding factor. So they are able to come to it from that perspective about the range of variability and I guess the options that are available for assigning a patient to a treatment and following through with that treatment to ensure that it achieves its optimal clinical outcome. Yeah, we all come to clinical trials with our own particular perspective and skills. And so I think MD's particular skill is that they do understand uh, the treatment environment, uh, the variability between patients. They have clinical judgment. They understand uh, what can go wrong and what can go right in clinical trials because they've had that specific experience. Uh, statisticians come with a different perspective, which is that they're able to quantitate uh, those sources of noise. They're able to quantitate what the power in the clinical trial is. But, but I think it's really important for all of us to try and understand the environment in which clinical trials happen. So I, I always try and facilitate my stats colleagues having closer contacts with the sites, at least during the design phase of a trial. So, so they understand how patients are treated and, and how patients behave. It doesn't have to be the same level, but I think it certainly helps a statistician in, when they're thinking about what they do to also have part of that perspective. Yeah, it's difficult to imagine a statistician or data scientist operating at the best of their ability without actually truly understanding at least some portion of the clinical or biological mechanisms that are affecting the data that they are in charge of analyzing. But you mentioned clinical trial sites, and I'm a bit curious, does the perspective of a clinician change between the clinician who is planning the clinical trial on the planning committee and a clinician who is located at a clinical trial site during the process of executing the clinical trial? Uh, in a simple case, you know, they typically work for different companies. But are there other aspects as well where the clinician planning the clinical trial really differs in perspective from the clinician who's at the trial site? So, uh, you know, the, the way we look at it at Abby is we have our internal uh, medical development function, the clinicians in the company, and then we've got investigators at the site. We don't operate through another company. We have a fully in-source model, so we don't use CROs. Uh, we uh, run all of our own clinical trials and we send our own monitors to the site. So a clinician designing a clinical trial obviously has a very different perspective to the investigator who's actually going to be managing the patient. Often there's so much distance between the two that that's not really good for clinical trial operation. And I think that people who've worked in pharmaceutical companies for a long time often forget what it's like to actually be an investigator or be a patient. And we tend to design clinical trials that are not particularly friendly for investigators or patients. And, and that's just a shame because those trials don't go well. So I, I like my clinicians to have as much contact with the site during the design phase, to use as much input from investigators, site coordinators, and patients as we can get during the design phase so that we design better clinical trials. Oh, wow. Actually, that, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. As you can probably guess when I was talking about the difference between the clinicians and the trial planning versus at the trial site, CROs were precisely what I had in mind. 
was this part of AbbVie's strategy from the beginning, or what, how, how did this work into AbbVie's strategy? So about six years ago, when just after AbbVie split from Abbott, we decided that we would change the model by which we ran clinical trials. Up until then, we had almost exclusively worked through CROs. But we decided after some financial analysis that we could save ourselves about a third of the budget uh, in a clinical trial by running the, the trial totally in-house. And that, that is a little obvious because the profit model for CROs uh, requires that they bill us more than what they actually pay out to their own staff. So by bringing those people in-house, we're able to reduce costs. What we've discovered since then is that there are a lot of other benefits. One of the benefits is that sites prefer to work through the originating company. Um, they prefer not to have to work through the interface of a CRO. So uh, we tend to have better site relationships. And then the other one is because we're operating a fully integrated system, we've been able to build in uh, e-clinical systems that, uh, that reduce the burden of running a clinical trial because we're able to integrate all of the aspects of running that clinical trial into our own e-clinical systems. So we've found a, a number of benefits. Not every company is gonna have the size and scale to do this. We totally understand that. But uh, there is a trend now in large pharma towards uh, insourcing clinical trial operations. Well, I'm really interested to hear more about this model because I don't just view myself as a data scientist or a statistician or an engineer. In many ways, I view myself most fundamentally as a scientist. And I'm a bit curious about this model because by having a direct pipeline between the trial sponsor or the trial planner or whoever's designing the clinical trial protocol and the sites executing the protocol, do you find that this actually can be helpful to protect the scientific integrity of the trial by uh, just by having that direct pipeline and having that more direct communication? Yeah, I, I don't think that that's part of the model. And actually, um, most CROs actually uh, do a really good job of running clinical trials. So I, I don't feel like they're a barrier to, uh, to good science and collecting the best possible data. Um, you know, they, they, they're also professional in what they do and think very carefully about how they run clinical trials. They uh, understand the concepts of GCP. So th that's not really uh, part of the motivation to, uh, to insource clinical trials. Well, cool. Is this the same topic that you'll be covering in the Orange County Biostatistics Symposium, or will you be covering other topics as well? Yeah, so I, what I'm going to talk about, is I'm, I'm going to talk about how the cost of running clinical trials has become increasingly more expensive as there's more competition for patients. Uh, regulators want to see more data and longer-term data in patients. And so the, the impact of that on clinical development is that we've now started to focus on diseases of low prevalence but where we can charge a high price because payers don't have so much concern about pricing when they don't have a lot of patients with that particular disease. And if you look at cardiovascular disease, for instance, it's still the disease that kills the most Americans uh, or actually people globally than any other disease, including cancer. But there's very little investment in, in cardiovascular disease, taking it as an example, because 
it's it's a high prevalence uh, chronic disease and uh, the cost of running clinical trials and having to do outcome studies just makes it um, unattractive and then you can't charge a lot for those kind of therapies so how can how can we change this paradigm and be able to go back to working on these diseases that are really important uh, but have to come with a different cost model and I see technology as being the savior in this regard technology is changing all of the aspects of running clinical trials uh, whether it's finding patients using uh, social networking whether it's providing a uh, immersive environment for patients that helps them be in a clinical trial and stay in a clinical trial whether it's making it easier for physicians to collect the data, uh, whether it's capturing data totally passively using the Internet of Things and, and connected sensors, or whether it's using real-world data to design better clinical trials and predict what's going to happen in that clinical trial. Uh, so technology is coming to clinical trials, and so we have to think about how we run clinical trials differently now. We have to think about going from being banking in the 80s where you had uh, the occasional ATM machine to where now it's a totally digital environment. And, that, and, that, and that's what's going to be going to allow us to go back to studying diseases of high prevalence but, uh, but low impact. So I'm interested to flesh out a bit more the issue of chronic diseases that you just brought up. Are the demands on innovators innovating and creating solutions for chronic diseases versus acute illnesses? Do the demands on innovators change, and should innovators be looking at different aspects when trying to address clinical needs in these two different types of illnesses? For example, should they be looking at different aspects of the biological mechanisms that are involved or the clinical pathways or the clinical care process, depending on whether they're innovating for on a chronic disease versus an acute disease? What are the differences in demands from a clinical perspective? between these two disease areas? I think what's going to happen, or at least what I hope is going to happen, is this concept of precision medicine is going to come to diseases like hypertension. So at the moment, we don't really understand that well why patients have hypertension. We tend to use drugs uh, that are broadly targeted at everybody. Uh, we try them out, and if they don't work, we either add on another drug or we replace the drug that we were giving with another drug that's sort of broadly targeted. But I think with the advances that we're making in genomics and understanding the underlying basis of disease, in the future we'll be able to uh, target with precision which drug a patient should get. So we'll become more effective at managing patients. Uh, probably they'll get fewer drugs and we'll get better outcomes. And with better targeted drugs that have a bigger impact in patients, we may be able to charge prices that uh, can compete with, uh, with generics, not on a pricing basis, but on a return for value basis. So I'm really interested to hear a bit more about the issue of outcomes and measuring outcomes and understanding outcomes, because, you know, you could take something like vital signs where, an intra, the intrapatient range of any given vital sign, like heart rate or respiratory rate, is very confined compare, and very precise compared to what the global population ranges for that same metric. And so the idea here is that by understanding more of that 
individual patient's range, you have a better understanding of what their actual outcome is. You aren't conflating a wide range, a global range, and a global variability with what might actually be a much smaller patient-specific variability. Are these the type of things that come into play? That's absolutely true. And if, let's take a practical example. We're running a study in Alzheimer's disease, and we're measuring cognitive function. Now, patients have good days and bad days. They perform well on tests on some days and not so well on other days. And so at, at baseline, you may have captured the patient on a bad day, and then you give them a therapy that doesn't work, and then you do your follow-up measurement on a good day, and you get the feeling that this therapy has worked. So with, with new ways and novel digital endpoints of measuring cognitive function, uh, we can actually measure it on a much more frequent basis. We could measure it several times during the day. Uh, we could measure it over a range of days, and we could get a real baseline that doesn't, uh, isn't marred by the fact that the patient's having a good day or a bad day. And we can do that for the follow-up measurements as well. Some of the novel digital endpoints for Alzheimer's disease, for instance, involve things that patients do uh, on a regular basis every day, like interact with the keyboard on their smartphone. There's a cor correlation between the way you interact with the keyboard on your smartphone and what your cognitive function is. So we could be capturing that 100 times a day and get a very good measure over a period of week of what a patient's cognitive function is and then be able to measure that very accurately later and, and do smaller, more targeted clinical trials. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, it'd be a real shame if because you were reliant on sporadic measurements to understand what a patient's outcome or a patient's reaction was, that you were then either introducing a large number of spurious correlations or completely missing signals due to, for example, intraday variability or the change of a patient from one week to the next or from any of these things because if you had sporadic measurements you're more or less rolling the dice with exactly when you're going to observe a patient which outcome you're going to measure whereas if you have this greater continuity you have this greater context of what the patient's real outcome is and also better understand what their baseline is and how much they are deviating from their baseline the, the classic example of that is, uh, is hypertension. And so uh, we learned 20 years ago that when patients measure their blood pressure at home using a home blood pressure cuff, you get measurements that better correlate with long-term outcomes for the patient than when they come to a doctor's office and get a clinic blood pressure measurement. And so part of that is white coat hypertension. Patients react when they see physicians or they're in the doctor's office it can be stressful and their blood pressure can go up. But some of it's also, how did they get there? Did they have a bad day in the traffic on the way there? And so when patient takes their blood pressure at home using a consumer device in a sort of reproducible low stress environment, you get better measurements. So we knew that 20 years ago. Uh, we kind of have to relearn those things now for now that we have uh, wearable sensors that patients can use on a frequent basis. And actually, on the issue of interacting with clinicians, the interaction between statisticians and clinicians, as you know, the demands on a data scientist and the demands on a statistician are changing, and the demands on clinicians are changing. And 
historically for clinical trial design, the interaction between statisticians and clinicians was fairly well understood and defined. Uh, the friction points were understood and well managed. There's a very good relationship between statisticians and clinicians when it came to clinical trial design. But as the demands on a statistician or a data scientist change, and as the demands on a clinician change, what are some of the ways that a statistician can be sure to put their best foot forward in establishing a good working relationship with a clinician to make sure it's as fruitful as possible? So, you know, I think in the past, people tended to think of statisticians as folks who sat in the back room and, and played with data and uh, really, that's not a functional model. The, the way it works well is when the statistician is part of the team that designs a clinical trial. And, and I really see it as a team activity. So uh, it, it takes a village to design a good clinical trial. You need the clinician who understands the disease process and the way the drug works and the way the patient's managed. You need the clinical operations folks who understand um, how it's actually going to operate at the site, what's going to be required to set up the clinical trial and monitor it. And then the statistician can play a really strong role in providing information upfront about the way patients are managed, uh, the way patients behave using real-world data. There are plenty of real-world data sets out there. So statisticians can help physicians understand what's really happening out there for those patients. How do those patients really behave? What are they really taking as concomitant med medications? Um, I think the statistician should be involved in understanding why we running the clinical trial, what's the, uh, what's the strategy behind it? Uh, how's it gonna play out in the commercial marketplace? Um, when, they, when they do that, I think they can, they can help physicians better uh, know how to collect the data, when to collect the data, when to measure the endpoints. And, and so, you know, what, how, how we should structure the analysis of the endpoints and make up for multiplicity, for instance. So on the issue of teams working together, as you know, one place in which clinicians play a crucial role is in power calculations of a trial. You know, typically we think of power calculations as the statistician's domain because they're the ones crunching the numbers. But... It's the clinicians who tell us things like the clinically meaningful difference in performance and expected outcomes of the control arm versus the treatment arm, um, and also things like recruitment rates, what you can expect as a recruitment rate at a trial, and how a trial site should be governing that interface with patients, especially as I now know at Abbey because you're working directly with your sites. Um, but what are the other places that clinicians should have a strong influence over a clinical trial? Where would you want to see your clinical colleagues further increasing their presence in future clinical trials? Yeah, so actually, I think that clinicians are, at, at least at Abbey and most of the places I've worked, are adequately involved in, in clinical trial design. Um, what, what I do see is that uh, if you have 40 teams at Abbey in the old days and you ask them to design a clinical trial, they'd all do it in, in a different way. Uh, one team would get a couple of people together in a dark room and work on the design and throw it out there. Another team would get uh, 40 people in a room and sort of hash it out that way. Um, one team would be highly data-driven and would look at the data for patients with that disease and look at recent clinical trials 
and another team would work on gut feel and past experience. So we've we've tried to do away with that variability in the way teams work. We have a center of excellence for clinical trial design. We actually stipulate who's in the room at the time uh, that they sit down to think about the design, and we stipulate what sort of data they should look look at, at in advance, real-world data in advance. And so actually what we're doing is we're tending to get more people other than the clinician involved. We're getting medical affairs folks who um, out there in the marketplace working with sites. We're getting statisticians. We're getting uh, people in safety. Um, we even have commercial folks in the room sometime. So we're actually expanding the range of insights that come into the room when we sit down to do uh, clinical trials. I think physicians are totally adequately represented in the process. We need to get other voices. And actually, one of the voices that I forgot that's really important, we increasingly have patients as part of that design process. Yeah, Rob, it's really interesting and exciting, the idea of bringing more patients into the trial design process and better understanding what their concerns and priorities are um, while in the process of designing the trial. Um, so thanks so much for coming on today. I really appreciate you spending some time with us talking more about what the clinical or the clinician's perspective is on the variety of challenges in uh, drug and device development. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your keynote speech at the Orange County Biostatistics Symposium next month. So thanks so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Glenn. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I'm looking forward to seeing you and, and everybody else at the, at the symposium. Thank you. All right. Bye. Well, that's it for this episode of The Pod of Asclepius. We hope you enjoyed it and will tune in for our next episode. If you're watching from YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and leave a like. You can also follow us on our other social media channels, including LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Have a great story or presentation that's ready for prime time? Or know someone who does? Drop Glenn an email because he'd be happy to hear from you. We would like to thank our sponsors from the American Statistical Association section on Statistical Learning and Data Science, section on Medical Devices and Diagnostics, and North Carolina Chapter. The views expressed on the show are those of the speaker and not their employers, our sponsors, or anyone else not saying the words.